Today's passage is taken from Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Thanks, Bob. Well, good morning. It is good to see you. Welcome to Disciples Church. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are glad, as always, that you're here with us today. If you're not already there in your Bibles, if you could please turn to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. If, as Bob was reading that text, you found yourself singing along in your head, you grew up in the church, congratulations. That's how we identify who you are. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, then today's going to be awesome for you because you're going to hear a very familiar story uh, to most people that may be new to you, uh, the story of Zacchaeus. And as we come into um, this familiar text, my mind was, was drawn because of something that I read this week. It was drawn to the people in my life who, I'd, who I've had opportunity to meet um, who had nicknames that really went to reflect uh, their character and their personality. About a year ago, I met a guy who's now a friend of mine. He's um, probably in his mid-60s, um, and everyone who knows him calls him Big Red. And if you were to f- at first see him, just at first glance, you would understand the big part. You might not understand the red part. He's a big fella. I mean, he's probably a solid 6'4", 6'5", walks around a little over 300 pounds, just a big guy. Um, but if you were to see a picture of him from his younger years, you would immediately understand why he was called Big Red, because he had a massive, shocking red beard. And so he's just one of those guys where somewhere along the, along the way he picked up this nickname and it very much fit him. And then there's people who are kind of named ironically. There's the large people who are called tiny, for instance. But I read an article several years ago that made this point that often the names that people are given when they're, when they're first born reveal a lot more about their parents than they do about the person themselves. And if we, if we think about that just for a minute within our own experience, even within the last, let's say, 50 to 70 years within our country, there was a whole generation of people where the name Kennedy grew to prominence uh, after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, this very well-respected president by many people. And so all sorts of people named their children after him. The same thing happened about 20 years later after Ronald Reagan was put into the presidency. You had a whole generation of people who grew up with the name Reagan because people were kind of tipping their hat as to their political perspective and and, and as to what they valued by the virtue of the name that they give their children. And the same thing is true of the text that we come to today where we're introduced to this man named Zacchaeus. Because Zacchaeus' name, in a real twist of fate, literally means pure, blameless, righteous. 
It gives us an insight into the parents of Zacchaeus. It gives us an insight into his home life. This man was born into the nation of Israel. He's an ethnic Jew who'd been named and raised within Judaism. He's likely named after one of the patriarchs that's listed in the narrative account in, in, in the book of Nehemiah. You'll find the, the surname that's, that's given there for which uh, Zacchaeus is likely named. And so very, very likely his parents had a, had a deep awareness and a deep appreciation of their own heritage. Like any parent, they wanted good things for their son. They wanted him to be raised up in this way where he had an understanding of who his God was, of, who his, of where his identity was found. And yet the character that we're introduced to in this text, both by his own account and the account of everyone who knew him, was anything but pure and righteous. But in this story, Zacchaeus has an encounter with Jesus the Christ. He has an encounter with Jesus, and through this exchange, we're given a glimpse into the mission of Jesus. And our hope is that as we go through these next three Sundays, as we approach Holy Week, we'll really be able to address in depth three pressing ideas. For what purpose, first of all, did Jesus come? And that's what we're going to look at today in the story in the life of Zacchaeus. Second, who is Jesus that he could actually accomplish that mission? Which is at least in part what we'll address uh, next week as, as we go into Palm Sunday. And finally, how did Jesus accomplish that mission? Which is what we'll address on Good Friday and on Easter. And in the text we're looking at today, Jesus is on his final approach into Jerusalem. He's heading there for the Passover feast, for the Passover uh, uh, recognition of the people of Israel. He's on his way there ultimately to his own death. And these stories that we find in the latter half of the book of Luke are everything that leads him to those final moments on the cross and ultimately his resurrection. And so I think this story gives us a very clear sense, both implicitly and explicitly, the mission for which Jesus Christ came. And we find this beginning in verse 1 of chapter 19. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And that language, by the way, is important. He's just passing through. This isn't his final destination. He just happens to, in the sovereignty of God, be going through this portion of the country. We'll come back around to that towards the end of the sermon. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Now, even though the story of Zacchaeus is familiar to most Christians, the Bible doesn't actually give us a lot of information about him. But there's a, a surprising amount of detail that we can pull just from these simple verses. Because of his heritage, that Jewish heritage into which Zacchaeus was born, it's likely that he would have known those Old Testament teachings, the promise of a, of a coming Messiah who is going to deliver the people from their sins, who is going to bring uh, this spiritual nation of God into prominence. He, was, he, he knew about the promises of a Messiah that was going to rescue his people. He knew the stories of God's faithfulness and deliverance of Israel from the domination and the oppression, for instance, of Egypt. But despite knowing all of that about who God is and what God had promised and what God had done and how faithful he'd been, when Israel found itself once again in this place of Roman occupation and and oppression, Zacchaeus was willing to sell out his own people. He was willing to sell them out in order to experience the favor of the invading Romans. He found himself on the wrong side of his own people. And we know that because this text says that he was a tax collector and was rich. 
And both of those ideas are important within this context because when the Romans came into a new region, one of the things that they would do is they would hire local people to represent them for taxation for a whole lot of reasons that speculated that they did this. One of the reasons is that the people might respond better to someone that they knew rather than someone who showed up at their door as a representative of Rome who they'd never met before. But one of the other reasons that speculated is because if you grew up in and around the people that lived around you, you likely knew how much money they made, at least in ballpark figures. You might have an idea if they were trying to hide some income or hide some wealth from the Roman government. And so it makes sense that these locals would know what was going on and be in a position, therefore, to take advantage of their own countrymen for the sake of funding an occupying force. And so Zacchaeus signed on to be a tax collector, and through his efforts, he was funding the occupation of his countrymen. You can imagine how unpopular that made him. Imagine, just for a moment, if the United States of America was invaded and occupied by a foreign force, and your neighbor or your friends or someone that you went to church with went to work for that occupying force, came to your door seeking your money to keep that invading force in power. What kind of words, thoughts, attitudes might you have toward that individual? But what made it worse is that tax collectors didn't just get a salary from the Roman government. That wasn't their sole means of income. But in addition to that, the Romans would say, look, all we need from this person is X amount of money. And as long as you get that from them, we don't care what else you do. If you're able to get some more money from them, if you're able to strong arm them and demand even more money, you can keep the extra so long as we get our share. And so the way that these tax collectors often would make their living is by skimming their friends, their neighbors, and their countrymen out of their hard-earned money. And as if all of that isn't enough, we're told that he was the chief tax collector, which likely meant that he oversaw the taxation of this entire region and was likely responsible for recruiting and managing all the other tax collectors. You can imagine how hated this group of people was broadly, and specifically how how hated Zacchaeus was. People knew him when he walked down the street. They knew him as a traitor. They knew him as a scam artist. They knew him as a cheat. And it's this man in this particular day who, according to verse 3, was seeking to see who Jesus was. And those eight words have been, been on my mind All week long, he was seeking to see who Jesus was. We don't know what exactly Zacchaeus knew about Jesus, but there was something about him that intrigued intrigued him. Something about Jesus that was so interesting to Zacchaeus that he wanted to see who this Jesus was. Here is a man who held an important position in the region, and sure, he was hated by his countrymen, but he didn't get into this business to make friends. He got into this business to get rich. And unlike a lot of people who have aspirations to be wealthy, Zacchaeus actually accomplished it. He'd actually done well what it was that he wanted to do. He had made all kinds of money. He had put himself in a position of political prominence and financial prominence. 
his work and his dedication, even to the extent that it was unfair and mistreated others, had advanced him in his career. And it made him so wealthy that Luke, in reporting this story, goes out of his way to point out his success. Presumably, Zacchaeus had achieved everything in his life that he had set out to achieve, but he was still searching. Despite having gotten what it was that he set out to get, he had not found the fulfillment, the joy, the meaning for which he'd longed. And perhaps he assumed, like many people do, that if he just made enough money, if he had enough financial security, if he had enough expendable income, he'd be able to purchase his way into happiness, to feel the sense of security that he longed for, the sense of belonging that he didn't have. But getting everything that he wanted did nothing but underscore how empty his desires were. And he wanted to see Jesus. There's no doubt, given Zacchaeus' actions and what's going on in and around the life of Jesus Christ at this point, there is no doubt that Zacchaeus had heard about Jesus' exploits because everybody in the region had heard about his exploits. They'd heard about his miracles and they'd heard about his teaching. They'd heard about the way that he interacted with people. Perhaps Zacchaeus had heard the stories of the gentleness with which Jesus had interacted with sinners like himself. Or maybe someone had relayed the parable of the prodigal son that Jesus had given just chapters earlier in order to illustrate the love and the redemption offered by God. A story that Zacchaeus could relate to as someone who'd grown up hearing about God but who'd wandered away. Maybe he'd even heard that Jesus had recruited a tax collector named Matthew to be one of his disciples. How could it be that Jesus, the great rabbi, would be willing to fraternize with someone like him? See, Zacchaeus was experiencing the longing of someone who'd gone down every road to look for meaning and found them all to be dead ends. And now here was Jesus, who had referred to himself as the way, the truth, and the life and promised restoration and relationship with the God who felt so distant from Zacchaeus. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Verse 3, but on account of the crowd, he could not. This crowd by this point is massive. Word has gone out that Jesus is making his way into town. People are pouring into the streets to see him. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for Jesus was about to pass that way. And the verbiage that's used here, again, is easy to read past, but it's interesting in its usage because it says that Zacchaeus ran and climbed. So desperate is Zacchaeus to see Jesus that he's willing to humble himself by running through the streets, which is something that dignified men did not do in this time, and climbing into a tree to find a perch. And at least in my mind's eye, there's a couple kids sitting in the tree eating an apple waiting for Jesus and here comes a wee little man climbing into a sycamore tree to take his spot and see if he can just get a glimpse of the passing Savior. And you can imagine the risk of ridicule that Zacchaeus was exposing himself to. Already when he walked by, people knew who he was. They passed to the other side of the street. They made a a, a snide comment under their breath. They gave him a dirty look. And here he comes running, which respectable men did not do, and climbing into a tree. This man who was already easy to make fun of 
just put himself into a position to be made fun of even more. But, says Walter Liefeld in his commentary on this book, Zacchaeus' desire to see Jesus, though commendable, was surpassed by the fact that Jesus wanted to see him. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he, that is Zacchaeus, hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus must have been shocked. He's sitting in a tree just hoping to get a distant glimpse of the Savior who's walking through town. And of all of the people that Jesus could have spoken to, all of the worthy people, all of the religious people, all of the people who had their lives together, all of the people who hadn't scammed their neighbors and served an occupying force, all of the people who were in a position physically to be greeted by Jesus, Jesus walks past all of them walks right up to this particular tree and chooses to speak to Zacchaeus. In fact, calls him by name and says, let's go, I'm coming to your house for dinner. And Jesus says, I must stay with you. And when he uses that word must, he's invoking the sovereign purpose of God. He's not saying, I have nowhere else to to stay. I have nowhere else to eat dinner. Jesus had all kinds of options and opportunities. Everybody wanted to sit and talk with Jesus. Anybody would have gladly received him into their homes. But he says, I must stay with you. In God's sovereign purpose and design, Zacchaeus, I have come for you specifically. See, Jesus didn't do anything that God the Father didn't direct him to do. We're told that explicitly throughout the New Testament. The streets are crowded that day, but Jesus didn't go to the house of the local rabbi or dine with the religious leaders or hold court with the political influencers. He goes out of his way to seek the company of someone who had not invited him over and who never would have presumed Jesus' interest. And there's a lesson in that because Jesus is no respecter of persons. Jesus didn't come for the religious or the noble or the highborn or the moralists. He didn't come for those who could do something for him or advance his career or his notoriety or boost his reputation. Jesus came for the losers, the liars, the lame, and the lifeless. He came for the sick and the sinners and the senseless. He came for the forgettable and the faithless and the frauds and the failures. He came for the tax cheats and the prostitutes and the drunks and the objectionable. And when we as broken people try to masquerade as being something more than desperate and depressed and depraved and disillusioned, we do nothing but rob ourselves of receiving the generous invitation of a gracious Savior who loves nothing more than meeting us in the middle of our mess and bringing us into his blessing. Jesus wants us in our desperation. He wants us in our brokenness. He wants us in our inability. 
He is not looking for a better, cleaned-up version of you who is in less need of him than you are right now. He wants those who realize they can do nothing for themselves. Look at the response of the people to Jesus' invitation to Zacchaeus. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. And look at what they say. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Jesus risks his own reputation. In fact, his own reputation in this moment is not just risked, it's hurt. There are all sorts of people there that day who left this gathering with a lesser opinion of Jesus Christ than they came into it with. And imagine the crowds that Jesus could have continued to garner to himself if he would have avoided Jesus, or better yet, or avoided Zacchaeus rather, or better yet, called out Zacchaeus. If he would have rejected Zacchaeus, if he would have judged Zacchaeus, the people would have rallied to his defense. They would have loved him all the more. But instead, he goes after the one and loses the affection of the many. Here is Jesus, the great teacher, the healer, the miracle worker, potentially the most famous and popular figure in the region at this time, daring to eat with one of the most unpopular people in the region. And the people who saw this didn't delight in God's grace and they didn't, they didn't marvel at Jesus' kindness. Instead, they grumbled and they judged and they ridiculed. Who is this Jesus? The supposed teacher. The supposed man of God that he would go spend time with a sinner like Zacchaeus. And the reason they thought this, as we referenced several weeks ago, weeks ago from one Hebrew commentator, is that in Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God. For the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in the meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house has spoken over the unbroken bread. Meal times were sacred to the Jews. In other words, by inviting Zacchaeus to dinner and going into his house and sitting with him and dining with him and spending time with him, what Jesus ultimately was saying to Zacchaeus is, you, Zacchaeus, are receiving part of the blessing of being part of the family of God. God's love is for you. His compassion is for you. His heart is towards you. His affections are directed at you. And that was the opposite message of what anybody else there that day wanted Zacchaeus to hear. But in this moment, Zacchaeus, perhaps for the first time in his life, or the first time since childhood, was experiencing true gospel love. See, gospel love is a love that is not conditioned on someone else's worthiness. Nor is it withheld based on someone else's contemptibility. The gospel of Jesus Christ, as we've talked about at length in our series in Galatians, the gospel of Jesus Christ presumes unworthiness. It presumes our contemptibility. It presumes our undeserving nature. And still, it delivers full love and acceptance. So Tim Keller, writing about this idea, said it this way, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear.
So think about those two ideas for a minute. Here's what Keller ultimately is saying, and this is really a gospel idea more than anything. He says, to be loved but not fully known is comforting but superficial. If you're loved but you're not fully known, there's always gonna be that part of you that says, if people really knew the real me, if they knew what I struggle with, if they knew my history, if they knew my past, if they knew what goes on in the darkness of my mind or in the isolation of my home or in the moments where I'm completely alone, if they knew who I really was, they wouldn't love me. And so to be loved but not fully known, it's, it's comforting but it's superficial. It doesn't actually get at the heart of who I am. It feels good on the surface, but underneath there will always be that question of, would they really love me if they actually knew me? And conversely, says Keller, to be fully known but not loved is our deepest fear. People now know who I really am, and because they know who I really am, they, they don't love me. That's terrifying. But he continues and he says, but to be fully known and truly loved is the way we are loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be fully known and fully loved is to experience gospel love. That God knows who you actually are. He knows what's going on in the depth of your heart, in your darkest moments, in your worst spots in life. That he knows what you are and who you are and still loves you that his love isn't diminished, that his love doesn't lose its intensity, that he doesn't love you out of some mere obligation, but that his love is actually pursuing you and caring for you and meeting you in the middle of it. And Zacchaeus, in this encounter with Jesus, for the first time in his life, potentially, was both fully known and fully loved. Jesus knew exactly who he would be dining with. He knew exactly this man's reputation, and far more than his reputation, he knew Zacchaeus' heart. He finds that Jesus finds himself in this moment at the Spirit's direction and guidance, at the will of the Father. He calls him by name. He knows what's going on in Zacchaeus' heart, and far from driving him away from Zacchaeus, it drives him closer to him. See, Jesus knew exactly who Zacchaeus was, and he knew exactly how it would be perceived from those who were looking on. And far from that knowledge keeping him away from Zacchaeus, it led him to say, I must go to your house. I must come for you. You're exactly the person I want to dine with tonight. Elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to by my my personal favorite title for Jesus that we find in Scripture, which is as friend of sinners. And the reason I love that is because it reveals that compassionate heart of Jesus Christ. That he's not scared of being friends with people like me or people like you. So Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house and they sit and they talk and they dine and notice the effect of the loving presence of Jesus in Zacchaeus' life. Now they're in Zacchaeus' home, verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. 
And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come, past tense, to this house, since he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. Now I want you to notice what Jesus just said there. Salvation did not come, this is the words of one commentator, salvation did not come to this house because Zacchaeus finally did a good deed, but because he was a son of Abraham, according to verse 9. In other words, because he was a believer and thus a spiritual descendant of Abraham. In other words, Zacchaeus in this moment didn't receive salvation because he turned over a new leaf. He turned over a new leaf because he just found salvation. In the presence of Jesus the Christ, Zacchaeus finds purpose and meaning. He finds acceptance and forgiveness. He finds these things that he presumed were impossible for him to find because of what he'd done. And in this moment, as Zacchaeus looks love in the eyes, he starts to live for something new. The money and the possessions that he'd spent all of his life working for and longing for and living for suddenly become expendable to him. Everything that he had gathered to himself suddenly becomes meaningless to him. Why? Because he had found something infinitely more valuable in the presence of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm going to take away half of what I have. I'm going to give it away to others. And anything I've taken fraudulently, I'm going to return with interest. His affections have changed. His motivations have changed because he found acceptance in Christ. The Savior, the bringer of salvation, had come to Zacchaeus that day. The Lord of the universe had stormed the citadel of Zacchaeus' heart and claimed it for himself, delivering Zacchaeus from the meaninglessness and the hopelessness of his own pursuits. And in case we missed the implicit purpose for which Jesus came into this world, Jesus gives us his own mission statement in verse 10. Why did I come, says Jesus? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus says, you want to know why I'm here, Zacchaeus? And in the recorded words of Luke, do you want to know why I came, says Jesus? I came for you to seek and to save you who are lost. It was the divine purpose of Jesus Christ to come into the world to seek out and rescue sinners. Why did Jesus come? He came for people like Zacchaeus. He came for people like you and for me. He came for religious frauds and spiritual failures. He came for the wayward and the wandering who needed to be brought home. See, this story stands as a testament to the fact that it is Jesus who, according to the love of the Father, in obedience to the Father, and to the glory of the Father, divinely pursued you with his grace. Do you understand, as you hear these words from this text this morning, that to the extent that your heart resonates with the reality of Zacchaeus, to the extent that you go, yes, I was a spiritual failure, I was spiritually dead, but now I'm alive in Jesus Christ. Do you understand that to the extent that that has been your experience, it was Jesus who called you into that, it was Jesus who pursued you, it was Jesus who saved you? That there was nothing you did to bring salvation to yourself 
understand your mere interest in the distant figure of Jesus did no more to save you than Zacchaeus' climbing into a tree did to save him. But we might respond, I've always been religious. I've always been interested in these things. I've always wanted to know God and I've read the Bible on my own and I've attended church and I've walked an aisle to pray a prayer of salvation. Certainly, those are things that I've done. But what this story reminds us of is that even to the extent that you heard of Jesus and made an effort to see him, you are simply being led by the divine purpose of the Spirit to the place where Jesus would call you and say, today I want to be with you. That from beginning to end, it is Jesus who does that work through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. One commentator said it this way, by the very exceptionalness of his position, Zacchaeus strikes the eye of all. His name goes forth from mouth to mouth. Here and there, dislike manifests itself against him. And in an entirely natural way, the Savior's look is directed upon Zacchaeus. In other words, he's saying it's totally natural to some extent or another that Jesus would have looked at Zacchaeus in the tree because everybody there knew who Zacchaeus was. But what is truly divine, the commentator goes on to say, what is truly divine consists in this, that our Lord at once fathoms the heart of man and that he fulfills his longing for a better good in a way which causes Zacchaeus to find more than he had at that moment sought. In other words, we don't know exactly what it was that led Zacchaeus there that day. Maybe he was longing for some sense of forgiveness, for some sense of atonement, for some sense of belonging. Maybe he was just there out of pure interest. Who is this Jesus that everyone's talking about? I should probably see for myself. But whatever it was that took Zacchaeus there that day, Jesus met him in it and gave him infinitely more. Why? Because he fathomed Zacchaeus' heart. Whatever desires Zacchaeus had that led him to that tree to look for Jesus, Jesus said, I see something that you need that is infinitely deeper and that only I can give you. See, the truth of the matter is that if Jesus responding to the will of that father that day had not stopped and called out to Zacchaeus, he would have continued on out of Jericho, never to return to it, and Zacchaeus would have left that day unchanged. Still looking, still longing, but with no sense of satisfaction and no sense of joy. He would have been just one more person who doesn't see Jesus and doesn't care about Jesus and would have been just as happy to leave his presence. But in calling Zacchaeus by name and showing grace to this man, Jesus brought him into line with his given name. Zacchaeus was made pure and righteous and blameless. Not because he gave money back, but because he looked Jesus Christ, his Savior, in the eye because that Savior was going to go on ahead into Jerusalem, was going to be killed on the cross for Zacchaeus' sin, and was going to raise from the dead to impart new life to him. And the same thing is true for you today. 
your hope, your confidence, your salvation, your ability to be called pure and blameless and righteous, just like Zacchaeus, rests only in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And if that's you, would today be the day where you would find yourself gazing upon him from a distance and hearing his voice say, today is the day that I want to be with you. I want to come to your house and I want you to receive salvation through me. Let's pray. God, we thank you for familiar stories and beloved childhood songs that teach us about the goodness of a Savior who cared so much for his creation that he stepped into time and pursued those, those who were actively looking and seeking, those who were avoiding and running, those who were trying to find hope and solace in religion, and those who were running from religion at all costs, that he came for all of these because all are equally lost in our own ways. God, I thank you that you've done this in my life and in the lives of so many in this room. And would we all be reminded today that to the extent that we find ourselves hearing and listening and responding to your voice, it is only because you've done a work in us first. And God, for those in this room who don't know you, who upon hearing this sort of message for the first time or the thousandth time continue to say, how can that be true for me? Is this even real? Is there actually hope and forgiveness and salvation to be found? Would today be the day where they would hear you calling their name, inviting yourself into their life to bring them salvation full and free so that they could be called pure and blameless and righteous no matter what they have done or will do? God, give us confidence that you alone can do this work and that you are desirous to do it in our lives. Give us hope in you and in you alone. And it's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen.